Hello, and welcome to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Shannon Paulus. I'm a writer at Slate, where I cover health and science. This season, we're talking about the world of running, with athletes, coaches, and people who do all manner of things to help others run. This week, we're talking to Jim Heim, who is the race director for the New York City Marathon. He's had that job for about a year, and before that, he was the marathon's technical director. Jim will talk to us about all the chaos and joy behind the scenes of the largest marathon in the world. He'll also tell us why he wanted to be part of New York Roadrunners. That's the organization that puts on the marathon. Without having much prior experience or even interest in running himself. I was especially excited to talk to Jim because I'm going to be running the New York Marathon for the first time this fall. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Jim Heim. I'm Senior Vice President of Events for New York Roadrunners and the Race Director of the TCS New York City Marathon. So the New York City Marathon isn't until November. Correct. What are you doing as a race director right now in February? Well, I mean, plenty of things for the marathon. But at New York Roadrunners, we're, actually, we're a year-round not-for-profit. We produce about 50 races a year, along with all sorts of other community programs from youth to seniors. So we're busy year-round. Almost every weekend we have a race. So what does getting ready for a race look like? Like, what's an example of a race that's coming up soon, and what are you doing? It looks different depending on what's going on, right? So what we call weekly races, we have a lot of races in park property, Central Park, Prospect Park, and the like. So usually someone on my team, I, I got 50 full-time people on my team, and wow. someone would own that, and everyone owns kind of a portfolio of events. So they run point, and then you know, me and my senior team are there to support them and guide them through. But then when you get to the bigger things, like the United Airlines NYC half is, is next month. The popular Brooklyn half is in, in May. And then obviously the TCS New York City Marathon, it becomes all hands on deck and everyone owns kind of a piece within and we bring it all together. What is the most fun one to own, do you think? Is there like a certain race that your staff just jockeys well, I mean, to have control of? It's really, well, a lot of them, obviously the marathon is like that's. It's not only the biggest marathon in the world, it's one of the biggest events in the world, bar none. And the, the magic and the feeling from that one, you can't beat. But there's some really, really cool things we do. The New Balance Fifth Avenue Mile, which has a lot of history to it, or the, um, the New York Mini, which was the first all-women's road race in the world. That's a 10K, right? 10K. Starts outside of Central Park and finishes in the park. About 10,000 women. It's uh, in year 49. It started a couple weeks before Title IX in 1972. So we take a lot of pride in that one. The Pride Run, the Achilles Hope and Possibility. There's so many. The team's always jockeying for all of them. <laughs> so I was reading another interview that you did saying your routine, I think, before the popular Brooklyn Half, where you started at like 12 a.m. You were out there um, <laughs> helping get roads blocked off, working with police. Tell us a little bit about your routine like the night before a race. Is that typical? Well, I mean, it's not, that's like behind the curtain type stuff, right? So we call it in our group, we call it Ducks in the Pond. Like above the water, you see the duck just gliding along. Below the water, we're, we're paddling like heck. It is not, we love what we do, but it's not easy, right? We are turning communities into courses. And you got to do it in a very finite period of time. And then you got to disappear like you were never there. So a lot happened before the big street races, for sure. It's a kind of an all-night affair. And then, you know, luckily working with the, the city agency partners here in New York City, no one puts on big events like they do. So if we're going to do big things, this is the city to do it in. And they're amazing partners. We couldn't, this is not just us and our own. This is the city coming together to make these things happen. How many days in advance before the New York City Marathon do you have to start kind of reshuffling the roads? Lots happens. Like, well, so I, I live outside the city, right? And I do a pretty significant commute, but I live in the city for a month before the marathon. 
my family, God love them. They allow that to happen. When you get post-Labor Day coming into the marathon, it's kind of all hands on deck all the time. It's not a nine-to-fiver for sure. And it's kind of roll up your sleeves and whatever it takes. You never know. Yeah, you were telling me before you got started that you normally have a two-hour commute. And, I do. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so then for that month before the marathon, are you living like out of an Airbnb? I'm um, in a hotel right in Midtown. And okay. It's nice to go from significant commute to basically no commute for a while. <laughs> and how long are your days during that month? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Like it's it, There's such adrenaline to it. Time goes out the window. It's just whatever it takes. What are some examples of the little tasks that you're doing during that month that the average runner, you know, hopefully never thinks of or never has to deal with? We don't want them to have to think of that, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's part of the magic. They don't need to worry about that. We got it. Just I want them to know we got you covered. You know, whatever can happen. This is New York City. This is not a stadium or an arena, right? Mm-hmm. It's we're going to go 26.2 miles through all five barrows. And the city keeps going, right? So if there's water main breaks, you know, there's amazing bike lanes going in all over the place. So like we always got to, you know, be able to hit the curveball and, and roll with it and, and figure it out with the city as we go. Things happen all the time. Um, but it's part of the nature of what we do. What is something that went wrong or was poised to go wrong before last November's race that your team had to deal with? I wouldn't say anything goes wrong. It's just always the challenges and you got to work through them, right? So here's a specific one. Central Park West which is an you know, amazing roadway along the post-finish area of the marathon where we put our broadcast compound and a bike lane went in there a month or two before the marathon. So we had to work with the city to come up with a plan of how we're going to have a broadcast compound there so we can show the world this amazing event, but still have a bike lane that's functional and whatnot. So those are the types of things we, you know, we had to work through all the time. Broadcast compound is so that folks who aren't in New York City or who have a loved one who are who's running the marathon can kind of like get a window into what's happening. Well, so it's yeah, I mean it, the marathon is broadcast live across the country and in, in like 180 territories around the world with a broadcast reach of over 700 million people. So to make that happen, um, broadcast compound meaning like all the production trucks and generators and whatnot to to make the actual you know, worldwide broadcast happen. It's not just a an overnight thing. That's about a week of work to get that all set up so you can broadcast nationally and internationally. It sounds like the kind of work that would go into like broadcasting the Oscars or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you're doing <laughs> a live event. Totally like. Pop-up broadcasting work, right? So a big part of our job is creating our venue. Right? We don't own a stadium. We create the venue. We operate it. We got to make sure everyone owns the properties and whatnot that we're going to utilize. Is on, they're totally on board. So my job is so much about relationships internally within our organization and externally with the city. Everyone has to be on the same page with what you're going to do before you do it because it's going to pop up real quick and then all of a sudden it's there. <laughs> yeah, so you're kind of creating like a stadium that's edging into that new bike lane even. Exactly. What's that conversation with the city like to be able to plop a broadcasting compound in that bike lane? The marathon itself is so ingrained into the culture. It's a cultural phenomenon. It is woven into the fabric of the city. So when we talk to anyone at the mayor's office of special events or NYPD or FDNY or sanitation or parks, everyone is just as invested in the New York City Marathon as we are. So the conversations are amazing because it's always, how do we make this work together? It's not about us. This is about New York City and showing New York City to the rest of the world. It's where the world comes to run an amazing day, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say for listeners who might not live in New York who aren't familiar with the marathon, it really, I want to say shuts down the city because it kind of does. Like I live on 4th Avenue right next to the marathon route and oh, like cool. 
on that day, you're like, okay, like if I'm going to go to brunch, it has to be like on this side of the street because right, right. there are going to be thousands of runners like that's what forming I mean about, this river. <laughs> that's what I mean about woven in. Like th- this year is a huge year for us. It's going to be the 50th TCS New York City Marathon, right? So a year long celebration. But that it only happens from history and time. You know, it, it's become accepted, right? It is. It's disruptive for sure. But then when you get to the point where, like in Brooklyn, along 4th Avenue, a lot of the fluid stations that are along there have four generations of families out there supporting it. They sign up the day after the marathon for the next year, and it's like part of being part of their community. There's also like a, there's about 125 live musical acts out there. That happened for a long time with, you know, even outside of us, people just started showing up and playing music. So we legitimized it about a decade or so ago and put them all on our permit. So it's the community comes out and supports this event and is part of it. So it's people that live right in the neighborhood that's passing through. It's kind of like a giant party. It's a huge party. Yeah, we call it a you know, 26-mile black party. <laughs> What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. I want to talk a little bit more about the lead up to the actual like sure. start line. What time do you start getting ready on the day of or the night before? What time are you like, I'm setting my alarm for this time and then I'm going to be awake <laughs> so, running the marathon? <laughs> so here's the, um, it's actually an insider story, right? So this past year, I had to do a lot of forward facing things race morning, which I didn't do previously because I was behind the curtain. So previously, as a you know, technical director and lead of all the operations, I would be up on the bridge at 11 p.m., technically the night before. And then what's always nice for us is daylight savings time. So the clocks roll back, so we get an, an extra 2 a.m., which we use that extra time to build what we got to build, especially up on the bridge. There basically wasn't a night before in that role. This year, I, I got to sleep at least like three whole hours, and I had to set my alarm. And I'm like, wait a minute. It's two o'clock. It's a three o'clock. Which, because I didn't, I for thirteen years I didn't have to worry about sleep, sleep in relation to daylight saving time because I knew I was going to be up for it anyway. So, so it was very confusing as to what. So eventually, I woke up at three a.m. and then did my first interview. I think at four thirty a.m. from from down the start village there. Was it kind of a relief to get that extra sleep? No. <laughs> I mean, I mean I, when I say sleep, I think I was like resting ish. So I 
I wrote out all my, I, I got the starty to the, there's several different starts actually. It's not just one mess start, right? So there's professional wheelchairs and there's disabled athletes. And so I got to start all the early starts. So I had to write out my script of what I'm going to say. And I did that from a, a hotel room down in the, uh, in the start village area. I don't know that I actually slept at all, but it's, <laughs> it doesn't matter. And, and adrenaline's an amazing thing. <laughs> So when you say script to start things off, you're actually like standing there with a microphone, like welcoming folks. Absolutely. Welcoming them, telling them how much they inspire us, telling them to enjoy their journey and telling them how much the city's ready for them. It's like a 26.2 mile victory lap. (laughs) How many times do you have to say that speech? So there's four different waves. So the professional men in wave one start right behind them. After that, I got to sneak out and, and get in the vehicle and, and race in front of them underneath the bridge. It's very tricky, James Bond style. So I'm not there for the rest of the mass starts. But in all, on all the courses and all the different starts, there's actually 18 different starts to the TCS New York City Marathon. So I started probably a dozen of them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Does it get hard to have that energy? Like, especially when no. you've been... <laughs> no, not at all. Even so, I'm, I'm there myself at that, you know... 10, 11, 12 p.m. type thing at the very end. And it's the adrenaline is it's still there. Like you you feel these people. You can't let them down and get tired. That doesn't happen. Um, sleep pretty well the next day, though, for sure. <laughs> yeah, what does the next week look like? Well, it's, I mean, um, there's still lots of press type things and whatnot and, and taking the winners around and you know, lots of ongoing celebrations and, and thank yous. Thank yous to everybody, right? There are thousands of police officers out there. There are, you know, FDMY, every every agency is all involved. So it, it's thanking them for their work because they're, I mean, they're working just as hard as we are to, to make this thing happen. So it's a it's a kind of a tour of of events and thank yous on the on the back end. Is there any like celebration ritual that you have or anything you do with your family after everything's calmed down? Um, just disappear eventually. You know, a couple weeks after, just disappear for a week or so and just do nothing. <laughs> That that was an interesting one for, you know, finally walking the door at my house and my kids are like, go, go, go. Let's watch the broadcast. Let's get. And I'm like, can we just sit here? <laughs> yeah, you, you do need a moment to, to recover. Fred Laveau, you know, one of our longtime founders and one of the founders of, frankly, of urban marathoning around the world, he would get depressed after the marathon because he, he put so much into it. And then all of a sudden it's, it's not there. And he would say, how could we possibly do that bigger next year. So there's a there's a moment, a few moments of of that, of uh, you, know, you work so hard, so much adrenaline, and it goes so well, and it was amazing. Like, we had such an amazing year. And then there's a, you do get this moment of, well, what's next? But then a couple weeks pass, and then it's, you're raring to go, and you're like, this, we're going to be better than ever next year. What do you do in that kind of, like, low, come-down moment? I Listen, so th- this is where this year's experience was very different for me, right? So... I work hard. I've always worked hard. No problem with working hard, but very different experience being forward-facing this past year. So that was my biggest learning from this year, of especially marathon week. Like I got, I got more, <laughs> to be honest with you, I got more attention that week than I got in my entire life combined to that point, right? This is a global event and global media and tons of events leading in. So the feeling of, of uh, in essence, kind of feeling like you have to be on 24-7 leading in and talking to so many folks and representing all the time. On the back end, it was mentally, it was a different kind of exhaustion. I would wake up in the middle of the night at home sometimes thinking that, frankly, the winners were coming and the media were coming and I had to do an interview and and I had to get up and get ready and I had to convince myself, wait a minute, it's 3 a.m. and you're at home. (laughs) That's that's not happening. (laughs) 
it's like how some people get, or a lot of people get exam nightmares. Like it's long exactly after that type of thing, right? <laughs> Realizing you didn't go to the uh, the class all semester, and all of a sudden you got to show up for the final. That that type of thing happens a little bit. So before this, you worked with the Philadelphia Eagles. I did. Can you tell me a little bit about that role? So happy for Andy Reid. He finally won the Super Bowl with the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, yes. Um, so yeah, so I went to the University of Scranton. I graduated in 1998. And I spent the summer after graduating trying to prove to myself and my family that I was going to work in sports. I didn't know what the heck that even meant. I didn't know what the opportunities really were. Um, but I wound up falling into an internship at the Philadelphia Eagles ticket office. And under my first mentor, wound up being a guy named Leo Carlin. And Leo, God love him, I hope he's out there listening. He was the Eagles ticket manager for, for almost 60 years and just just saw the way he treated people and the way he presented himself. I'm like, that's the guy that I want to be. So I wound up um, going from the ticket office there, interning for a while, and then, and then running. It's basically stadium operations. I ran the suites at the old veteran stadium in Philadelphia for the last three years it was up. And then I got the help to open Lincoln Financial Field which at the time I left was still a new stadium, but now it's 15 years old or so. But the experience of opening a stadium was pretty awesome. So I always worked for the Eagles, but we had plenty of events at the vet. We still had Phillies baseball, we had Army-Navy games and presidential visits, Temple University football, concerts, so lots of things. So big job. I had a big staff. I had about 300 people on staff. But when my wife and I were having our first kid, and Christine had always worked up in Manhattan and lived up this way. We said, it's it's time to try to be up here. So I found New York Roadrunners not having known much of anything at all other than that they produced the New York City Marathon. So I started here in, in 2007 as an event manager and then worked my way up through. And then about a year or so ago, I became the, the race director. That was my plan. It, it happened. Frankly, working in events wasn't even my plan. Uh, but it turned out, I guess I was pretty good at it. <laughs> What did it feel like to get that first internship at the ticket office? It felt awesome. Like I literally, I would have cleaned the bathrooms, you know, I'd, whatever it took, right? I mean, you got you to gotta put your time in. And, you know, that's actually what I see with younger folks these days. That they, get, they lose sight of the fact that you got to put your time in. And you got to climb that ladder and it's rung by rung. It's not, you don't get promoted every three months or something. So I, I really put my time in. I was making $6 an hour out of school you know, with a degree for almost a year. That's how much I wanted to find my place and get my foot in the door. So you got to you got to take the time and put the time in. But man, so that first year we were terrible as a football team. We were the worst team in the league, and then that's the year after that is when we drafted Donovan McNabb, and then we went on to. I know you're not a huge sports person, right? But the, <laughs> we went to four straight <laughs> NFC Championship games. We finally won one. We went to the Super Bowl, and we did actually lose to those dreaded New England Patriots. But the the feeling of going to the Super Bowl and being part of making some of those events happen too, just an awesome experience. What were you doing for six bucks an hour back in that ticket office? Lots of customer service work. And when you're doing customer service work in Philadelphia, when you're the worst team in the league, it was tough. <laughs> were people grumpy because the team wasn't of doing well? Of course. And they have very high expectations in Philadelphia, as they should, because it's an amazing place. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm from Philadelphia, even though I'm See, not a you know. sports person. <laughs> but you know, it's like lots, lots of pride, right? They have high expectations. Did doing that job change the way you interact with like other customer service people and you're going about your life? I, you know, I think, think it helped reinforce. I'm big into listening and empathy and just hearing people want to be heard. If they're heard, they're going to be disarmed. If they're disarmed, you can you know, do something together and, and figure it out together. So I think it just reinforced that I, I like the way that I treat people, I guess, right? It sounds like you do a lot of that in your job now, just liaising. It's totally. It's a relationship-based job, for sure. We couldn't do any—if if we didn't build the trust with the city, 
We couldn't do what we're doing. If the TCX New York City Marathon did not exist at all, and we walked in the door and we said, we want to run 53,640 people through all five boroughs in 26 miles, and we want to have a million people watching on the sidelines, the city would tell you you're nuts. So we've built that trust and that history and that tradition over the 49 years, and now it's to an amazing place of a if anyone out there has not experienced being there that day, you don't even have to run. Just be there and you can feel it. It is such an amazing thing to be part of an event that changes people's lives. Like I, I get the privilege of standing at the finish line and greeting people. You can see how much it means to cross that finish line. It is a bucket list. It's a life-changing event. To be able to be part of someone's lifetime memory that they will never forget is a pretty amazing thing. What did it feel like standing at the line for that first time? Oh, well, I mean, it's it's not even just that finish line, but that day. We had a gorgeous day this past year. By the time we get to race day, the marathon's really, it's really like several events. You have an expo where 125,000 people are going to come over three days at the Javits Center. You have the start village that we're building for a month. You have the finish area that we're building for about three weeks. The actual start line on the Marathona Bridge, we can't do anything there until midnight the day of the race. So once you reach dawn on race day and the sun is starting to come up and you can see the bridge is all set and we're ready for everybody and the buses start to roll in, it's such an amazing feeling to know that the world is coming. And then I get, I get to start the races, which is amazing. And then I'm in a, in a vehicle going down the course right in front of the professional athletes. And it's, <laughs> if you get the chance to run it, and I think you are running this year, I right? am running. Oh, man, we're going to yep. have to talk about that. <laughs> but, like, you cannot help but be inspired every step of the way. It's, it's uh, incredible to see the streets lined with people on both sides all the way through the city. So to get the chance to be in front of those pros, you feel, I feel like, frankly, that I'm winning the race, right? And we're doing, obviously, last-minute checks and whatnot. But then standing at that finish line for the first time, knowing that, you know, we got everyone started. We got it. They're all underway. Things are rocking and rolling. It's just a feeling of pride, pride in the, my whole team, in the city, and in the country. It's it's one of the most powerful days you could ever imagine. Does it feel similarly to watching the Eagles play a football game? The only one I would equate it to, I got the chance to be on the field when we finally won the NFC Championship game in Philadelphia after losing several years in a row before that, when we won that game to go to the Super Bowl. Um, and frankly, I got to hug Andy Reid and Jeffrey Lurie, the Eagles owner and whatnot. So that feeling of being on that field then... I would equate that, but that's pretty much the only time it's, it really feels similar of something that's just so much bigger than you. Do you feel like you got to satisfy that, you know, dream you had back when you were graduating from college and you were like, I just want to work in sports? Yes. I mean, who knew? Like, who knew where the path would take me? I, I legit, I knew nothing about events when I was coming out then, but I'm big into passion. I haven't, I've been working for, oh my goodness now over 20 years, but I don't really feel like I go to work every day because I love what I do. And if you're passionate about what you're doing, then it doesn't feel like a job. And it hasn't since day one. So what was your relationship with running when you took this job? None. <laughs> I mean, my, my relationship was with events and putting on, you know, the bigger the event, the more adrenaline's involved, and the more I, the more I love it. But I wouldn't, you know, I, I hadn't self-identified as a runner. I would play whatever sports growing up and whatnot, but it wasn't... Um, you know, running, but putting on events is what I love to do. And I, man, did I learn a lot since I came here. <laughs> Were you nervous or apprehensive or even just like a little bit like, man, my wife, like we need to relocate for her job and I'm going to move here and do this. <laughs> All but, good like, things. I mean, you got to do what you got to do, right? Life, yeah. life takes you different places. So New York Roadrunners has been around since 1958. 
for a long time, it was a running club. It was very small, right? Even the marathon was was small. The very first marathon was just in Central Park in 1970 with 127 people, right? So things have changed a lot since then. A lot more than 127 yeah, people. Yeah, for sure. So when I first started in 2007, we were a much smaller organization, literally less a third of the size that we are now. So I've, I've been here through a period of really impressive growth. Um, and we're reaching so many people uh, through all of our events and programs and whatnot. We're reaching 670,000 people a year now. So it's not just a marathon, obviously, right? So I've been part of a huge growth period and I've been able to grow with the organization at the same time. When you say 670,000 people, are those participants in races? So it's actually um, across our finish lines last year, it was over 300,000 people in our races. But we have all sorts of, we have a, a program called Rising New York Roadrunners, our youth program. There's about 250,000 kids in that program. And it's basically in all 50 states. And we're in 800 schools in New York City here alone with a free youth program. And it's all about you know, physical literacy and getting kids up and moving. And then we also have other you know, community-based programs. We've got something called Open Run. We're in 20 different parks in and around the city with free weekly, largely 5Ks at the same time, at the same park every week. So we're building you know, community in that regard. So it involves that as well. We've got a program for our what we call Striders, our senior citizen walking program. Uh, so if you add up all the programs together, you get to 670,000 people. It's unlike anything in the world. This running community here is incredible. Yeah, it's interesting. I When I first moved to New York, and even for a long time, I was super apprehensive about living in a city and being a runner and being able to yeah. get outside. But it, there's so much infrastructure here for doing that. It really is. And there's some amazing parkland, right? Central Park, yeah. Prospect Park, Flushing Meadows Park. Those are amazing parks that a lot of other cities don't have that offer the ability to, to run and not even be on streets. So you take this job kind of Who out knew? of logistics, <laughs> right, and, right. but you clearly like it a lot. I and do. Do you remember like the first time you were like, oh, yeah, this is like working out well? Okay, I do. This is actually a phone call to my mom. Shortly after I started, probably a month or two after I started in 2007, I was managing the course of the, the New York City Half Marathon, uh, which at that time was in August. So I guess, yeah, literally like a month after I started. And I will never forget being on the phone with my mom and I'm on a bicycle on the course. And that course goes through Times Square, you know, right, 7th Avenue, right through Times Square. And I said, Mom, when I call the police, they're going to reopen Times Square to traffic. I was like, I, I, what happened here? <laughs> so the, that's when I realized how big the job was and how an amazing an opportunity it was to be part of what it is that we do. Yeah, I can only imagine how powerful that must feel. <laughs> so it's a pretty, like. pretty amazing experience there, for sure. It's Times Square. Yeah. It's like crossroads of the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> so are you on that bike, like, looking for the last runner to, like, make their exactly. way through? Exactly. Make sure we're all clear, all cleaned up, safe to go, and then reopen traffic. What is a contingency plan that you have for something that has, like, never happened, but you're like, well, just in case this, like, weird thing well, I mean, took place? You know, listen, so we do things in the outdoors, in all weather, right? So weather-based things, you got to be ready for anything. Ice, snow, heat, wind, rain, lightning. Lightning's probably the toughest one, right, because that can form and be on you real quick, and you got you can't run through lightning. you got to be ready for what would you do if a lightning storm formed above you. It's all about when these things happen. If it happens four hours before the race— Okay, if it happens 10 minutes before the start, okay, you can delay and, and whatnot. If it happens while a race is underway, you got to be ready for what are you going to do. So weather-based contingency planning is what, we, is what we do a lot. What's the toughest weather thing you've had to deal with? I would say the New York City half, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but we got about a foot of snow two or three days before the race. And it was going to be super cold the rest of the time, so the snow wasn't going to go anywhere. So then it became a you know, working with the city 
and especially the amazing Department of Sanitation. Um, that's when we finished downtown in Manhattan still. And I'm telling you, they're so incredible. And the resources of the city are so incredible. They made it look like it hadn't snowed at all in lower Manhattan, you know, around the, the finish area. And they did that in less than 24 hours. That's probably the, the biggest one you can get is, is a lot of snowfall. Yeah, it's not fun to race in the snow. No, it's, it's challenging. <laughs> Was there concern that it wasn't going to work out, that you were going to have to call a snow day on the race? Always. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's so, you know, we obviously, Superstorm Sandy canceled the marathon in 2012, and we learned a lot from that. But it's like, listen, there are things you got to be ready to be able to have to to call it, too. And that can and does happen as well. What was that decision like to call it? Well, it was a little, I was I was in a, personally in a very different position then, mm-hmm. but it was hard, right? So that was, uh, that storm happened a Sunday the week before, and it took, frankly, a few days to figure out what was really going on in the city and whatnot. And, you know, in hindsight, would we have loved to have been able to call it a day or two earlier? Yes, of course we would. We couldn't actually cancel it until it was like Friday evening uh, around 5 p.m. when a lot of folks had already come into town. So that was a tough, that was a tough moment for us. For folks who aren't familiar, why do you have to apply to run a marathon? Why can't you just, you know, pay your $300 entry fee and show up? Yeah, because uh, interest is incredible, right? Well, every year over 100,000 people apply, um, and we have about over 50,000 people take part. But there isn't space for every single person, right? So we do a drawing method to make it as fair as we can to give everyone a shot. Is it harder to fill those smaller races? Um, it's really not. Um we're in a you know, fortunate position to do that because the races help us. We're, we're a not-for-profit, right? But we're a unique not-for-profit in that a lot of our income is earned income through the registrations. But that's what allows us to then generate funds to do all this, this free youth and community programming. So it's, it's amazing. But the, the demand for those weekly races, as we call them, those, those all sell out as well. Um, they're usually not instantaneous, but by the time you get to race day, they're, they're pretty much all sold out. Yeah, the mar- running a marathon is pretty expensive, especially the New York City Marathon. Sure. Where does that money go? So we are mission-driven, not-for-profit, right? So it goes into our bottom line to help pay our, obviously, our overhead, but all of our community programming. Like when you are in 800 schools with a program in New York City alone, it's not cheap to do any of that, right? So all that money, and it's not cheap to function on the city streets. There's a lot of costs involved, which is why that, that number is where it is. But that's those funds help generate all the good that we're able to do with them. I'm running the marathon in the fall. I heard that. Is yes. it, have you run a marathon before? <laughs> I've done two. I've done Toronto and Miami. Nice. Yeah. Those two are two of our friends there. So Toronto, that's uh, Alan Brooks is the race director up there, and Miami, Frankie Ruiz. So you did some good events there. You were in for a treat, though. I mean, this is gonna be, it's going to blow your mind for sure. <laughs> I'm super excited. <laughs> what do you talk about with other race directors? Uh, best practices. We look at it as we're kind of all in this together. Alan up in Toronto will talk all the time about things that they've learned, situations they've had to go through. So we, we help each other as an industry. It's part of leadership for us as New York Roadrunners. We, we want to be open and sharing with other race organizers in other cities to make help make their events better as well. I'm imagining like a bunch of race directors like hanging out at a race director conference. There is actually literally um, coming up in, in a few days here is the, is the Running USA conference out in Las Vegas. I won't be there myself, but a bunch of my team members will, and there'll be about 800 people in the running world from around the country out there together to, to do exactly that. What changes or what like exciting innovations have been happening in the race director world? Oh, my world is not that exciting. <laughs> 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 no, we're always looking for ways to innovate and trying to figure out what do people want next, right? So it's amazing. We're in an, an amazing spot where, you know, our 50 races a year, they all sell out. So people want to be a part of what we're doing, right? So we're always looking at ways, how can we create even more opportunity 
to take part in our community. Um, so we're always looking at, at adding more things. Um, we launched a race just last year in Jersey City, the Newport Fiesta 5K, you know, just right across the river along the water. And that's sold out as well. So it's almost like we can't keep up with the, the demand. Um, so we, we wanted to keep providing more and more opportunities to run with us and get healthier. I imagine that you feel a lot of pride hanging out with other race directors and having like one of the biggest marathons in the world. It is the biggest for the sure. Biggest, yeah. So we're part of a, a group called the Abbott World Marathon Majors. So it's us in New York, Chicago, Boston, London, Berlin, and Tokyo. So those are you know, six of the biggest and most prestigious you know, longtime marathons in the world. And they're all our partners. So we get together a lot. And that is uh, what I call my mentor support group, <laughs> right? Because I'm the new kid in the block in terms of being the race director. And those folks have all, I mean, they're, they're great to me. I can call them at any moment in time and bend their ear on their experience. Some of those folks, Carrie Pinkowski out in Chicago has been there 30 years. So he's seen it all, right? So you got to lean on, lean on your network of people as you, as you learn and grow. Have you ever run the marathon? I use a different definition of run. I've been running the marathon for 13 right. <laughs> years, but not, not physically running. Um, I would love to. But I, no, I have not. But, you know, that's why I lean on the people around. Like uh, New York Roadrunners is, is full of folks of all abilities. Um, and we you know, lean on their experience a lot in terms of, of actual running. I run 5Ks and 10Ks and whatnot, but I have not gotten myself up to the marathon distance. I'm always in awe of everyone that can do it. I was interviewing Myrna Valerio, who runs ultra marathons and marathons. Incredible. And yeah, she's a plus size runner, and she says people always say I don't look like the typical athlete, but when you look out like on all of the runners who are running out there, there yeah. is no like that like super skinny fast exactly. athlete so isn't a, the typical. It's a misnomer that we're still kind of battling is not the right word, but there's there are people out there to think New York Road Runners that you have to be like super fast and speedy, and it's a running club for fast people. Not at all. We are all ages, all abilities, and we're out there for everybody. There are course time limits. We try to make them as generous as possible. Because it doesn't matter. Everyone, everyone's a finisher. Everyone's a winner, right? So we try to be there from the very first to the very last to make sure the, that the experience is similar the whole day. doesn't matter what speed you're running. It doesn't matter if you're out there and you're doing it. What's the course time limit for the marathon? Uh, it is about seven hours, uh, which is longer than most in the world. And frankly, we go well beyond that, though, too. We have a luxury in that the last couple miles of our event are in Central Park. So it's not a roadway that needs to reopen, right? So we'll stay out there for our final finishers and we'll have them coming in until 10 or 11 p.m. And they'll, they'll have been out there 11, 12 hours. And we are out there in full celebrating those folks. You should see how, I mean, someone, you know, a typical person's going to run in somewhere in the four or five hour range. But when you're out there, when they're working that hard for that long, the emotion when they cross the finish line is even that much more. Literally, there's usually tears streaming down their face and they love the fact that we're still there for them at the end of the day. It's also just such a challenge to be on your feet for that long. That's what I mean. Like, they're working hard. Yeah. Like the winners, they're doing it in you know two hours and five minutes on the men's side and 2.20 on the women's side. They've been home. They, my, their flight might be home already. Right. And these pe- these folks are out there working for, for 12 plus hours. It's, it's really incredible, the resolve to do that. What are other ways that your organization lets people know that New York Roadrunners isn't just like a gang of fast people. <laughs> well, so here's an interesting one. So for a long time, a lot of people knew us for our races, and then a lot of other people knew us for our community programs and whatnot, and especially on the youth side. But they didn't necessarily know fully what we what we are. So what we've done is taken some of our bigger event properties, and we've integrated a youth event right into the day so that they can see it and be inspired by each other. So you know, next month, the United Airlines NYC half, Times Square, 7th Avenue, is frankly you know, wider than we need for the the adult runners running the half. So we've taken, for the past several years, we've taken half of that roadway 
and we have a thousand kids that are running about a mile alongside the runner at the same time they're running. And to see adults and little kids high-fiving each other as, as, as they run past each other, that's how the kids inspire the adults and the adults inspire the kids. And we get far more awareness to knowing that you know we're much more than just the races. Marathon day with a youth invitational. It's basically the last mile and a half and you get to cross that finish line. And that's, again, another thousand kids or so. So think of that inspirational moment, right? So it's Marathon Sunday. These kids get to cross the actual marathon finish line. We want those kids to then be inspired of, I want to cross this finish line you know, running 26.2 someday. And you can see what it means to them too. So it's, it's all about inspiration, helping, inspiring people through running. That's what we do. One of my favorite parts of running the two marathons that I've run is getting to high five children. Like when kids stand nice. out there with their parents, yeah. like stick their arms out. So I actually remember when I was um, probably about six years old, I actually handed out water on the Boston Marathon course. Really? We happened to be up there that day. It was not a, like a planned thing, but I, you know, I stumbled into that too. And who knew that's, that someday that it would be what I do? <laughs> What do you remember about that day? Uh, just the inspiration, right? And uh, frankly, when you're that little, not understanding what are these people doing or why, but you could see that everyone cared. Otherwise, I wouldn't remember that at all, right? But, could, but there's an emotion that goes into these things. You know, Boston, it, it's, it's cool. Every marathon's got their own kind of shtick, if you will, and their own you know, sweet spot. The Boston Marathon's running church, right? It's been 100 plus years coming up on, I think next year is 125. That's incredible, right? We are where the world comes to run. We're a global race. Half the folks are coming from overseas. There's about 140 or so countries represented. So it's like the United Nations of running. And it's when you get to that one day here in New York City, in the melting pot of the world, it's a melting pot of, of runners. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter how fast you are. It matters that you're there. And so it's like a celebration of humanity where all the other stuff, all the other nonsense goes out of the window, and it's just one common goal that day. And it's like, a, it's true magic. I, actually, I, I get chills just thinking about that day. It's, it's, it's amazing. So you didn't know a lot about runners before you started this job. Are there any big misconceptions that you had? No, I just didn't realize what, I, especially here in New York City, it's, it's so unique. The, the community of runners, it's not just people that, that show up once. Right, this is people engaging with us all the time, and they keep coming back. Right, so you got to tell yourself why, and it, the why is because it is community. There's a social aspect to this. We got in a race this weekend in Central Park, the Manhattan Seven. We'll five thousand people out there, and a lot of our kind of I, I hate to use the word typical because nothing's typical about them. Gathering five thousand people is, is a lot. That that would be most you know, mid major cities in the U.S. That would be their largest event in running in a year. And we do it almost weekly. So it's amazing what our team does week in and week out. But it's the, it's the camaraderie and social aspect that you get, you know, to the hilt with the marathon. You get that every weekend participating with us in any, in any way. Running is so social. And I think Completely, a lot of people yeah. don't realize that because you, it just looks like one person out there. Or yeah. That's the impression. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild because you are out there yourself and you are, you know, in essence, kind of racing against yourself, but being surrounded and having other people in it with you. Just gives you that extra boost of a, we can do this together. There's a gentleman named Sal who's run over 1,200, and he might be close to 1,300 of our races. Wow. Incredible, <laughs> right? So he, Sal, it's, it is part of his routine and part of his community and part of how he self-identifies as being you know, part of those events week in and week out. So it really, it does. It inspires people, and they keep coming back out. So I really like running and I really enjoy watching running. But as I was telling you earlier, I'm not so much of a sports fan otherwise. Mm -hmm. What would you say to me to try to convince me to watch like a football game or a hockey game? I don't think I have to. Like, it, yeah. So here's what's super unique about, about running and about something like the TCS New York City Marathon, right? So LeBron James, 
you know who that is, right? Yes. Basketball player. <laughs> so you, on that day, you will be running on the same route, a little bit behind, but on the same route as the very best runners in the world. So that's a really unique thing, right? So you not only, it's not like you're going to just watch a sporting event, you are the sporting event. And to be able to participate and be in the same exact event as the best in the world, same time, and then have a million people on the sidelines cheering you on, you're the star. That's it for this episode of Working. Again, I'm Shannon Paulus. If you liked this episode, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to email us at working at slate.com. Working is produced by Justin and Molly. Special thanks to Justin D. Wright for our ad music. Thanks for listening. Catch us next week for another episode on running. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.